Happy Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday, for those of you that uh, do or do not know, uh, was, is the day in the church calendar uh, that represents the time that the prophets spoke about. I'm thinking of Joel, who said that there, w- there was coming a time when the Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh. And then when Jesus comes in on the scene, he actually tells his disciples after he rises from the dead, he says, it's actually better. They're like clinging to him. And he said, it's actually better for me to leave you. And they're like, how is that better? Like, in what world is that ever a good thing? He said, well, if I leave, the, the promised helper, the Holy Spirit, will come to you. Uh, and he came in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, on the day of Pentecost and has been here ever since helping believers uh, follow Jesus. Uh, if you're excited about Pentecost Sunday, turn to someone next to you and say, I am so glad the Holy Spirit came. Because you need help. <laughs> no, don't say that. <laughs> I'll be speaking a little bit later uh, about Pentecost. But for now, let's launch into our text. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. We just finished chapter 1. We're now in chapter 2 in our series, A Change in Allegiance. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Give you a second to get there. This is what the Apostle Peter says. First three verses of First Peter chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word for today. Heavenly Father, we desperately want to taste and see the goodness of the Lord. We want to see your goodness in the land of the living. We ask right now that you would do whatever that you need to do by the power and presence of your spirit to prepare our hearts, to create space, not only in this place, but in our hearts and minds and souls to receive the implanted word. And we ask God, that you would change us. You would, not, we, uh, you would not allow us to simply leave here with more head knowledge, that our hearts would be changed, our actions would be changed, the things that we hope for and desire would be changed, our relationships, our ambitions, our plans. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we launch into... Uh, the first part of chapter two, these first three verses, I want to, I'm going to present it in about three different ways, three, three different things that I think Peter is alluding to when he speaks uh, in this text, these, these three verses, three questions or three uh, headlines, you could say, three points. One, what is the point of Christianity? Two, how to deepen your experience of that point, whatever it may be. And three, a couple ways that we go wrong. In that. So that's kind of what we're, we're going to go through right now. What is the point of Christianity? How to deepen your experience of it? And some common ways that we go wrong. Here, here's what I mean by what is the point of Christianity. If you've been walking with Jesus for some time, or you've been a Christian for some time, you might be experiencing something like this where, you know, after, yeah, at the beginning when you uh, first came to know Christ, you might have been jumping into your Bible and, and, and praying and uh, going to church worship services and gatherings and doing like some, some of the basic practices of Christianity. And it was, it was invigorating for you. It was exciting. It was this new thing. Perhaps after a couple years, you, you've gotten to this place where you're like, is this really all that, that Christianity is, is supposed to be? Like reading the Bible, going to church on Sunday, reading the Bible, going to church on Sunday, repeat like for the rest of my life. Like good things, but like is, it, is there more? Like What is the point of Christianity? Is it just to do a couple spiritual practices or disciplines? Think back to uh, this this time I was with my dad. My mom and dad live about four hours north in Watsonville, which is uh, on the outskirts of Santa Cruz. 
And I moved from there 12 years ago. And I remember the first years that I moved to Santa Barbara, they would come and visit me. And my dad, since then, for the, for the last 12 years, every time he's come to visit me here, he's always, I've, I've noticed this peculiar habit of his whenever he comes over here. We'll just be walking, talking, like walking down the street or whatnot, or going uh, downtown, and I'll see him, like in mid-conversation, just without skipping a beat, walk down or bend down and grab like a, a leaf of a succulent. He really likes succulents, and they're all over Santa Barbara, you know, those like cactusy looking desert plants. And he'll just grab like a little leaf and put it in his pocket without like saying anything, and be like, Dad, what are you doing? <laughs> why, are you, why are you pulling out the plants in my city? And he's like, well, uh, I'm, I, I want to redo my front yard. And it's a bunch of crabgrass. I'm going to tear out the crabgrass, and we're just going to throw these succulents in the ground. And I'm all, why? And he's all, well, succulents grow into, like, another plant. You throw them in the ground, they, like, grow into another, uh, another a plant. And I'm like, yeah, sure, Dad. And I cut off my arm and throw it on the ground. It turns into another Chris Lazo. It's great. <laughs> He's all, no, it really works. Like, it's awesome. It's like a magic beanstalk. And it, so I'm all, whatever, Dad. And that was like 12 years ago. And, he, you know, they always came to visit us. But in these last few years, we've been going over there. Got grandkids and stuff. So we've been going to visit my, my parents. And th- just recently, I went up to my dad's house and walked up to the front door 12 years later. And it blew my mind. I walked into this incredible, flourishing just, just plants and gardens everywhere. And he had, he, you know, he had done things like dig out a giant pond, put some koi fish in there, moved all of that dirt over here, created this mound, planted a, a little tree. It was like this big. Like he put it in with one hand. I remember when he did it. Now it's this big around. It's like two stories high. It's cactuses, two stories high. Like all of this plant life, none of it's native to Watsonville. And I walk up to it, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, just incredible beauty just taking over the front yard. I'm like, where did you get all of this stuff? And he's all, Santa Barbara. <laughs> it's like a little corner of Santa Barbara. It's just the middle of Watsonville. And I just blew my mind. I, I, would, I remember seeing him, and I'm like, what's the point of, because I, I had tried to do that with succulents after he told me that killed everything that I've ever touched. I'm like, I don't see the point of doing these little things. But my dad had this, this farther-reaching vision. And over time, his patient cultivating yielded this garden of life and activity that ended up absorbing that corner of the block and turning heads. And, I, and it, it clicked in my mind, especially as I was reading this verse, when Peter says that by these things, all of these little things that we do, they're not the point. They're not the end goal. They are a part of something bigger. And that bigger thing that uh, Peter says is that you may grow up into salvation. You may grow up into the bigger thing. And as he speaks about salvation, you know, he said in chapter 1, verse 5, that salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. It's not just your conversion. It's not just your born-again experience. But this whole entire process of God turning you into the person that he has envisioned you to be. And we've been speaking about this for years, you know, that growth and maturity and uh, union with Christ, all of those things, growth, maturity, the fruit of the Spirit, you know, uh, spiritual disciplines, reading your Bible, all of that stuff is subservient to this one thing, union, transforming union with Jesus Christ. That is the definition, the biblical definition and picture of what salvation is, continually conforming in that process of conforming to Jesus Christ. And as I, I think back upon my dad's garden, I remember Paul's words in Ephesians 4.15 that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Jesus Christ, into Christ. Bring all of this up. What is the point of Christianity? Perhaps because some of you last week as we were speaking about loving other people and loving other people specifically in the church, loving our brothers and sisters, you might be saying, well, I I am a Christian, I love God, but why can't I love others? It might be because you are not growing into that union or your growth has been stunted, one of those things. But this is what Peter is speaking about. What is the point of Christianity? It is salvation, it is union with Jesus Christ. And then he goes into the second point, how to deepen your experience of that union. And he really throws up two very simple things. Now, keep in mind, before we get into those simple things, what he says is, uh, he, he's basically going to tell us to discard the old and to cultivate the new. Discard the old and to cultivate the new. Put away 
this, 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 and that. And like newborn infants long for this. Discard the old, cultivate the new. But we have to understand that before either of these things are possible, this all depends first on you being born again, right? He started this whole book in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, uh, speaking about uh, being born again, he, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection. He ends this section in ch- uh, verse 23, telling us that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but the imperishable living and abiding word of God. So he bookends this whole s- uh, section of scripture, chapter 1, by talking about what it means and the implications of being born again. And then he turns a corner in chapter 2 and he says, so... In other words, because you have been born again, since you have been born again, put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. In other words, your job as a Christian, again, not the point, but it's it's for. The end goal is union with Christ. This is a part of that experience, putting off the old. And he begins to list a a number of vices that we are uh, perhaps a, a, a little familiar with. He speaks about malice. You know, malice is really just the evil intention of the heart towards someone else. You might say, well, I'm not evil towards anyone. Well, a grudge is a perfect example of how you are. <laughs> if you've ever had a grudge, malice. It's not necessarily, malice isn't an actual behavior. It's a condition of the heart. And so you might not actually do anything to someone else, but if you're, if you're resentful of them, Peter would say that is malice. Malice is that evil intention towards someone else. But don't you know that what starts in the heart, as Jesus says, out of the overflow of the mouth, uh, or out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Those, those appetites and desires in the heart eventually make themselves known uh, through behaviors and actions. And so we see that right here in deceit. Deceit is anything less than speaking the truth from your heart. Anything less than speaking truth to someone else. And, you know, this could be just flat out lying for personal gain, but it could also be uh, some of the forms of passive aggressive behavior that we, we use, where we don't quite want to speak the truth because we're afraid that they're going to think wrongly of us or because we, we love people's approval. We're afraid of challenging or good types of confrontation. Uh, so, deceit, anything less. And speaking the truth from the heart. And there's hypocrisy, another way that, that malice ends up coming out of our lives. Uh, hypocrisy is inconsistency between what you believe and what you do. Simple, right? You believe one thing, but you do the other. Envy, another vice of the heart. Uh, that's envy or jealousy. Pretty straightforward. You see someone else's uh, success and you, you don't bless them, you are you are envious, you are covetous, you want that for yourself and not for them. And then lastly, slander, spreading false, info, uh, false information that ends up damaging someone else's, uh, either their reputation or their influence. So Peter lists off a bunch of vices. You might say, well, this is, a, this is kind of an arbitrary list of vices because we could think of other ones that could fit into this list. Why did he, ex- why did he choose of these five. And you have to remember that he's piggybacking on what he just said, what we studied last week, where he's speaking about that prior command to love one another, to love other people. So right now, he is listing the obstacles to loving other people. Why don't we love people within the church? Why don't we love our brothers and sisters? It's probably due to malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander. One or all of those. (laughs) any cocktail of these five different vices, but Peter is is piggybacking on that prior command, and he's saying, these are some common obstacles to love. So I just told you, like, if you're a believer, if you're a born-again believer, you need to love the brethren, earnestly love one another from the heart. We're coming back next week, and I'm saying, how are you doing with it? Maybe some of you are like, eh, kind of, yeah, is God great on a curve? I don't know. If you had a hard time with that, it might be due to one of these five things. Peter's bringing them up. And notice that he's speaking to Christians. He's not speaking to non-believers. He's speaking to you and me. Christians that deal with vices, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. You say, how is this even possible if we've been born again uh, to live for Christ? How can a Christian even experience any of those things? And, you know, Paul explains in detail uh, in Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7 about how this works. He, he talks about how before we were born again, all people are slaves to sin. 
If you're a slave to something, you you have no choice but to do what is already in your heart. God tells us that sin is in our hearts. We have no choice but to succumb to malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And yet when a person is born again, we see this in Romans chapter 6 verse 22, when a person is born again, that slavery is broken. The power of sin and all of the vices that come with it in your life is broken and shattered. It has no power over you. Now, the, the Israel in the Old Testament used to have a, a variety of different feasts, about seven different feasts. They'd get together if, uh, once a year, actually seven times a year, and they would eat food. And each of these feasts were there to remind them of some truth of, uh, that God was wanting to impress on their hearts. And one of them was called the Feast of First Fruits. After the harvest, they would offer the first, of, uh, the first fruits of their feast, and they would just throw a party. And this was their way of saying, thank you, God, for, for what you have done. Interestingly, when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose during the Feast of Firstfruits. So he was attaching some significance to it. And Paul would actually clarify this later when he said, when Jesus rose from the dead, he was the firstfruits of a harvest, right? He was the firstfruits of a harvest of other men and women who would also rise or experience new life. And so he's attaching the significance to it. Well, after the, uh, the Feast of Firstfruits, uh, Scripture tells us in the Old Testament that after that, five weeks later, they were to celebrate what was called the the Feast of Shabbat, or weeks. Shabbat means weeks. Uh, And they they would call this the Feast of Weeks. And they uh, they called it the Feast of Weeks because it was was five weeks after the Feast of Firstfruits. And this was a feast for commemorating what God had given them. He had given them the law. And so this was a feast, just this giant party where they'd get around, eat food, and party for a few days at a time, and they'd be like, God, thank you that you've spoken to us. Thank you that you've told us what your will is. Thank you that you've told us how to live. It's so gracious and merciful of you. Now, the word, the feast of weeks, translated into Greek, comes out Pentecost. It's 50 days. Pentecost means 50 days. So if you were to uh, think back on Easter, which was March 27th, and count the days from then then till today, which is Pentecost Sunday, you would count 50 days. So 50 days later was the day of Pentecost. And you could see, just as Jesus rising from the dead on the Feast of Firstfruits brought it a a fuller significance, you can kind of see where this is going, right? With this feast that was commemorating God's law. All of a sudden, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit falls. And what was this alluding to? Well, the prophets were saying, the prophets Joel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel were telling us that this would happen. And what did they say? They said, there's coming a time, not, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but when God won't just shout to you from on high, he won't just write down what his will is on stone tablets, he will impress them upon your heart. He will give you a new spirit. And he will give you a heart of flesh. And you will no longer be listening with a hard heart, trying to do what God is telling you, but you will delight in the law of God. Why? Because of the ministry of the Spirit. And so, 50 days after Jesus rises from the dead, the Spirit of God falls and changes people's hearts for the first time. So when we say a person is born again and the slavery to sin is broken, it's because of what we celebrate today, the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit who gives you new desires and a new power to obey Christ. Now, if you're no longer slaves to sin, you can resist it now. You actually have a choice. And that's why Peter in our text says, now, if you've been born again, you got the Holy Spirit, put away all of this old stuff. All this stuff that you were enslaved to, all of these old behaviors, put it away. And he uses a specific word that was common in that day to refer to like removing of, of, of clothing, You're taking off your jacket. He's using the same thing, like, except it's a metaphor for discarding that old nature. He's saying, take it off. Just like you would take off your jacket, take off the false self. Take off malice, take off anger, take off, uh, uh, take off deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and all of those other things discarding those old desires and behaviors. They're not yours anymore. You don't, you don't have to, to carry them. You don't have to be identified with them. Now, you may be hearing this and saying, okay, I, I hear what Peter is saying, the Holy Spirit, all of that stuff, and I tried that. 
last week when I tried to love people. And then I went into a parking lot. Why is it so hard to stop sinning if I'm born again and since power, as you say from the scriptures, is defeated? And here's the thing. We live in that tension, right? We live in that tension where we, we are sent here in Santa Barbara in a fallen world, but we don't belong. And so here, here's the truth about sin. Here's what uh, Paul was so adept at speaking about. Sin has no power in the believer's life, but sin is still present in the believer. And sin can still be permitted by the believer. Sin has no power over you, but it's still present with you, and therefore still can be permitted by you. And so what Peter's saying is don't permit it anymore. No more permission. And sin's presence can be felt often in our deeply ingrained habits. We lived our life for ourselves for all of these years, and we developed habits and a way of thinking about the world. Those things don't just disappear. Habits don't just leave. And those deeply ingrained habits and appetites, Paul often had a, a word for that. He, he called it the flesh or the sinful nature. He's not you know, speaking about your knuckles and your elbow and your skin and bones, although it includes that stuff. He's speaking broadly about your sinful nature, your habits, your uh, old inclinations, and you can see this in, in him when he wrestles with this in Romans 7. I read this a, a number of times. I want to read it again. Where he says, I, I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This sounds like an episode of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? Like two people, that's exactly what it is. Listen to what he says. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Do you see this back and forth interplay that Paul is having between two things, my flesh and my inner being? What does he say? Nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh. But I delight in the law of God, that is in my inner man, in my inner being. Is he confused? Is he contradicting himself? No, he's speaking about a battle going on between his flesh and his new nature. God has given you a reborn heart, stocked, equipped with all of the new affections from heaven and the kingdom of God, and yet you have this old remnant of the the old self battling for real estate, battling uh, for permission. And Paul, just like Peter, would say, do not let sin reign Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Sin shall no longer be your master. Now, every time we act out in one of these vices, every time we we experience malice or grudges or deceit or hypocrisy or slander or envy or any number of other vices, it is is an episode of our flesh not submitting to your new nature. God created your heart to rule the rest of you. Created your heart to will your body to obey it as it's been given new natures. And this is a case of it being switched around. Your body is now ruling your heart. You're letting sin reign in your mortal bodies. Making, uh, it is making you obey its, its passions. And so when Peter says, put those things away, what does it mean to put away vices that really want to stay Those old habits, those sinful habits, what does it mean to put them away? Well, he's speaking about, in some way, spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. Paul would say, I discipline my body and keep it under strict control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be qualified. I I discipline my body, my my habits, my uh, physical body, my uh, uh, intentions. I keep them under my control. He would say in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I, I, I plead with you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. He would say, I think it's in uh, Corinthians 
or Romans or Galatians. He says, similarly, don't any longer, now that you have a choice and you have the power of the Holy Spirit, don't present your members, the members of your body, as instruments of unrighteousness, but now as instruments of righteousness. Discipline yourself. In other words, it's not enough for us to just say, God is in me, by grace I have been saved, I'm going to sit here passively and hope that God like, just does everything without my participation. It is by grace that we are saved. It is by grace that we are transformed. But that grace is something that we, we submit to. And Paul is always using, Peter is always using this language of a battle. We're not doing it to ourselves. God is doing it, but we're entering into that. I love what uh, Paul says in this way in Philippians where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. It's God doing it by grace, but we're participating in that. We're opening ourselves to it. We're obeying him by grace. And so if I'm struggling with slander, meaning every time I open my mouth, I just can't help but gossip and tear people down, a discipline might be by the power of the Holy Spirit to choose not to speak. Or to know I'm going into an environment where I'm just going to want to tear that person. Like, I'm going into this, I'm going to this party. So-and-so is going to be there. I know they're connected to this person. I hate that person. All I want to do is, is tear them down. I'm just going to avoid that situation. Or I'm just going uh, to, unless I can say something that will build them up, I'm just not going to say any, anything at all. I'm just going to be a forced introvert. Just, no. yeah. just going to hide in the corner. A discipline. I'm just totally exaggerating. Don't do that. But we are choosing not to speak in little ways over and over so that our bodies can develop new habits. You might see over time, well, why do I slander in the first place? It might be because of envy. You tear people down because you're jealous of them. And you're jealous of them because you, uh, you, uh, you, you are torn up about your own sense of self-worth. And so your way of, of feeling more self-worth is by tearing other people down through gossip and slander. All of that streams from envy, uh, a practice with envy. Uh, if I were to do this, this isn't like a, a once and for all cookie cutter stamp for all things and just throwing out a, a particular way, but there's a discipline of celebration to celebrate other people. There might be someone who just got a raise. You know what you could do in that moment? Dude, that's amazing! Dude, that is amazing. Praise God for what he's done for you. You might not even feel like that in your heart, but your mouth, causing your mouth to obey. Saying, I'm so stoked. God, wow. And just to think like of, of, of the way that you have worked to get to this point and God is just rewarding you and he's equipping you. Can I just pray for you right now? In your heart, you're just like, I just, oh, I'll pray for you, all right? Pray that God gives me a raise and cuts you down. Old nature. Peter says, put it away. Put it away. How do you put it away? Little by little, man. Little by little in small ways. You know what? I'm going to make my body obey by the power of the Holy Spirit. Brother, can I just pray for you? God, thank you so much for this this raise, for this promotion. I just pray that you would use them in deep ways. I pray that you would expand their influence. Uh, If if you're afraid that you're going to blow up, if you're around them, do it in in the prayer closet. Just begin to pray for people that you hate. Just pray for them. Lord, I just pray that your blessing would fall upon them, the windows of heaven. I pray that you would actually give them a bigger raise. You gave them a raise and I just cringed at it. I pray that you would double that raise. I pray that they would get better benefits and more money and I pray that they'd get a two-week vacation. Do it, Lord. God might do it. Know what what it'll definitely do if you keep doing that practice? Start to change your heart. Deceit. If you, uh, if you don't tell people the truth, uh, one common reason that we don't tell people the truth, some people don't tell other people the truth, not everyone, is because we are afraid of what people are going to think about us, right? So we, we butter it up, or we beat around the bush, or we lie so that they'll approve of us. Um, you could practice in small ways, even with friends. You could even tell them you're doing this. I just, I just want to practice... Speaking truth. 
And, and truth that is uncomfortable and inconvenient, like when you have to challenge someone lovingly or confront someone or say, ah, oh, that really hurt me or, or bothered me. I found I, I deal with this. I want everybody to love me. So that is struggle, like to tell people hard things. And so instead of waiting until a big moment arises, I can do that with someone that I trust. Like, hey, I just, let's work out this arrangement. I just want to practice speaking the truth. And, and I, I notice when I do it, my heart is like, oh, I hate this. Oh, but I'm going to do it. And the more I do it, the more my heart begins to fall in line. The more my flesh begins to obey. I'm changing inside in that moment, as I'm conflicted inside, I'm like, oh, I just, I don't like the feeling of this because it's conflict. I hate conflict, and, and I want other people to like me, but they might not like me right now, and that's okay. And then in that moment, I go back to just the gospel. God loves me. <laughs> I can receive of the love of God, and in this moment, because of, I have his approval and his accept, uh, accepting love, I can speak truth and not care what other people think of me. I've told this story a number of times when I, I was struggling with anger and resent, uh, resentfulness and bitterness, and I just started off as a seed. Where someone said something, and I allowed it to fester. You know that scripture, Ephesians 5, don't let the sun go down on your anger? Uh, uh, I let a year go down on my anger, man. I was like, I was past the point of just not being angry. Like, I would read those scriptures, and it would be like, don't be angry, or don't sin in your anger, and I'd... I, I just couldn't do it. It was impossible at that point, a point. I was enslaved to anger and resentfulness and bitterness. And no matter how many times I told myself, the Bible says, don't be angry. Stop being angry, Chris. I just couldn't do it. And it was the discipline of silence and solitude that began to tear a hole through the wall. And it wasn't because silence and solitude in itself is this powerful transformative thing, but because uh, I have this tendency to surround myself with busyness and productivity and just uh, action. And so to be by myself away from my phone and laptop and, and uh, papers and to-do lists, I was completely empty. It just felt like my soul was just naked, like I had nothing to do. I had nothing to accomplish. And so I, it was like this space opened up for the Holy Spirit to come in and examine some of the dirt that was in my heart. Why are you angry? Well, it's because of this. It's because uh, this and that, and I want to remove that and heal that and expose that, and I just broke. I just broke in the presence of God, and he began to heal me, and that, that power of bitterness uh, was broken over my life, but it was, it was because of taking seriously God's call to make space, to put away the old, make space for the new. Now, I want to I be care- very careful with this because disciplines and practices cannot in themselves change you. If you go out and fast, or you go out and read your Bible, or you go out and pray for like an hour or whatever, that in itself is not the end goal. Remember, the end goal is union with Christ. Disciplines themselves are not transformative. The only thing that can change you is the grace of God. The only thing that can change a dark, twisted, stubborn heart is the power of the living God by his precious Holy Spirit. What disciplines do is they position you to receive from God's grace, okay? They position you. I cannot transform myself or anyone else. I can create conditions and space in which God's transformation can take place in my life, where I can align myself, where I can open myself up and make myself available to God. That's why we come to to the church gathering on Sunday. That's why we give generously. That's why we sing and worship. That's why we read our Bibles. That's why we pray and the list of all of those things. They're not the point. The point is union with Christ, and these are some of the ways that he has given us in order to put away the old man and to be in the presence of God. Disciplines cannot change you, but they can position you to receive from God's power and his change. But before you do anything, any practice, any action, there must first be this deep longing in your heart for God. And this is his second point in that, in that scale. Not only are we called to put away the old but we're called to cultivate new longings. He tells us, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. When he speaks about pure spiritual milk, and this uh, obviously includes the word of God. He just spoke about that in verses 23 through 25, chapter 1 
uh, about the living and abiding word of God, but it's also much more broad. He's simply referring to uh, a constant sustenance, our souls constantly being fed through the word, through prayer, through all of those things, whatever it is, constant sustenance. He's, he's picturing us as people who are constantly in need of being sustained by God. He tells us to long for that pure spiritual uh, milk. You know what's interesting about this passage? There's only one imperative in the passage, only one direct command, and it's this one. Long. Long. For the pure spiritual milk. Long to grow in union with Christ. And he's using that that powerful metaphor of a a child nursing nursing at their mother's breast. He's saying in that same way. He's not saying, he's not saying it's, on, you know, it's only for infant Christians and then once you mature, you can stop longing. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in the same way that a baby just needs constant nourishment. Well, there's some new, uh, a lot of new parents in the building. You know what that's like, right? I mean, every 30 minutes, a newborn or whatever it is. It's been a while, I forget. It's like every 30 minutes, you're like, oh, wow, he's hungry? Okay, okay. You do, and, and like the whole day. And that's all they do is eat and sleep and eat and sleep and cry and some other things. But this baby is just constantly dependent on you, just constantly dependent for nourishment. That is the picture that, that, that Peter is trying to drill into our hearts. We, we need constant nourishment in the presence of God. We must supplement the putting away of sin and vices with the satisfying of these holy desires. I'm getting this from that last verse. He says that by it, everything that we just talked about, by it, you may grow into salvation. You say, well, how do I create those longings? How do I, how do I make like, those, those desires come? You, you already have them. If you're breathing, you have desires. Your heart is wired for desire. You were born, created with divine desire. Now, those desires were designed to be pointed towards God. You were created to desire God. Paul says in Acts chapter 17 that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, that they should seek God, that they should perhaps feel their way towards God and find him. You were created to seek and find God. And he goes on to say, for in him we live and move and have our being. You were created with desires, and those desires were created to be for God. So perhaps a better question that we should be asking is, in what way are our desires wrongly directed? What are you desiring now? As we put away vices even, as we're like envy, strife, you know, all of those things, we shouldn't just be endeavoring to put them away. We should be asking the Holy Spirit, as as David did, examine my heart. Why do I desire these things that I desire? Prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Wrongly directed. You see this metaphor? There's this hungry person that desperately needs food and he spends his money not on bread but on like some inanimate object? This is silly. This is, but this is what we're doing. Every time we uh, wrongly direct our our desires away from the things of God and towards these vices. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And God says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Every time a person is born again, at that moment, the soul for the first time has been rightly attached to the faucet of eternal life. Just the dripping, it's just that flowing of eternal life. But shouldn't stop there. You are made to continue drinking deeply from the fountain of eternal life. Point of this section of scripture, I think, is that you have been reborn. You who have been born again need constant sustenance on the things of God. And the difficulty with that for probably many of us in this room being the Santa Barbans that we are, is that we're busy. Just busy. Life, job, rent, all of those things, bills, activity. I get it. Lots of stuff. 
The only thing that we have time for are quick things, instant gratification. You guys see that, uh, that, front pa- that new front page on Amazon just for the, what is that new thing that they have, the dash buttons, Amazon dash buttons? These are the best thing I've ever seen. It's like a little magnet, and it's custom made. And you can get a custom one for any Amazon product. It could be Tide, it could be diapers. Uh, I don't know why I said that in diaper land still. It could be for soda, like it could be for anything. And you put it wherever that product is, in your kitchen or in your living room or in your bathroom, and when you run out, you push the button, Amazon sends. For those of us that, you know, don't have time to open up our laptops and click, click the one push button. Well, the truth of the matter is, I want hundreds of these things. I want them all over my house. I want them all over here because I need so many things. I don't even know what I need, but I just want to push things and I want them to, to come to my house. <laughs> and isn't that the way that we treat sometimes our, our spiritual lives? We just want to push a button. And perhaps that's what Sunday morning is for you, just pushing the button because Lord knows we don't have time the rest of the week. Brothers and sisters, following Jesus is not an overnight affair. It's not a one-time experience. It is, as Eugene Peterson calls, a long obedience in the same direction. And what many of you need today is depth over superficiality. I love this quote by Richard Foster who said, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. The greater, the desperate need today is for deep people. People who have shrunken deeply at the fountain of God. If we're going to have relationships in this town worth fighting for, if we're going to have any semblance of health and longevity, any lasting impact in this city as a church together, we must be serious about our spiritual growth. Sunday morning is not enough for you guys. It's not enough for me. Because, here's my last point, here are a couple ways that we can easily go wrong. Uh, one of them is, you know, as we're endeavoring to, to walk with Christ, one of those ways is uh, through legalism. Trying to do a bunch of right things for the wrong reasons. And you know, all legalism is, is, is doing one of these things that Peter tells us and not the other. We are busy putting away sin without cultivating new longings. We're getting rid of sin. We're, doing, uh, we're not doing all the wrong things. We're obeying the Ten Commandments. We're not filling up on the fountain of God. Then there's, on the other end of the spectrum, there's just hedonism, just self-indulgence, pursuit of pleasure. We're just all about that grace. We're just all about just pleasing ourselves. And that is flipping those two again. We're cultivating new longings without putting away sin. And both of these seem like polar opposites, but they're actually opposite sides of the same coin. The legalistic person is not experiencing God's love, and so what are they doing? They're trying to work for it. The hedonistic person is not experiencing God's love, and so they're trying to manufacture it. But even on opposite ends of the same coin, the key for both of them is that they're distant from God. That is the problem for all of us. That distance that superficiality, that shallowness is the problem for so many of us. And Peter says, and, and Peter says this, closing this passage of Scripture by saying, yes, do this, cultivate new longings, and yes, do this, put away all of these vices, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, you first must have had that taste. Think of the first time and I gave my two kids a taste of chocolate. And before I gave it, it was good chocolate too. It was like Belgian chocolate. And like I gave it to them. I knew I shouldn't have done it. Brandon knew that we shouldn't have done it. And we looked at each other and we were like, we shouldn't do this. And yet our hearts were like, but I love like the smile that they make at me when I give them things that they should not have. <laughs> and before that, like they could have cared less about chocolate. We had chocolate all over the house and they'd walk by it and be like, whatever, eh, I want my toys. And then one day at dinner, we give them a piece of chocolate and their eyes were enlightened to the glory of Switzerland. (laughs) 
And ever since then, they've had habits that we have been unable to break. Jude will wake up in the, from a nap, and the first thing out of his mouth is, treat, treat, like, give me a treat. I know what he's talking about, too. Give me chocolate. It was all over, and I can't stop them from longing for that. You know what the psalmist says to us? He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Using that visceral language to explain to us what our relationship to the Lord is supposed to be like, giving us that invitation to know God. Jesus did the same thing, but he issued it with a promise. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Taste. I want to end right now by asking you this question. Do you, do you struggle with tasting? Maybe you're hearing this and you're like, I've never tasted. I've read my Bible, I've gone to church, I've given, like, done all of these practices, but what you're describing, I've never had that. Or maybe you did once, you've been a Christian for a long time, but you could look back at your life and say, you know, I, I used to taste, but now that hunger has subsided. What happened? What do I do? Brother, sister, keep eating that chocolate. Keep tasting presence and the truth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 7, he stood up at another feast and he cried out at the end of the feast, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Keep tasting. Well, I, I, I have been. I've been pressing in and nothing's happened. So what? Keep eating that chocolate. Well, it's the wrong kind of chocolate. It's white chocolate, and I don't really like it. Just keep eating it. Well, I don't under, I'm like in Obadiah, and it doesn't make any sense. Well, stop reading Obadiah. Turn to something that does make sense. Turn to a passage of Scripture that tastes like chocolate, and just keep eating, and keep tasting, and keep immersing, and keep digesting, and keep eating, and keep chewing on, and keep div- uh, just, di- uh, just keep pouring into, and keep pressing in until that taste arises in your hearts, and you see and savor the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Some of you may resonate with some of those imbalanced ways of relating to God. You might be legalistic. You might be hedonistic. You might be closed off. Maybe you hear this line, taste and see that the Lord is good, and you're like, I want to believe that, but everyone in my life has been not good, and so I'm a little guarded with God, and maybe that's keeping you from experiencing the fullness of God. Maybe you're legalistic. Maybe you're so driven by a sense of self-worth that you're just trying to impress him. Maybe you're so in love with yourself that you're just not tasted of anything better than yourself yet. Right now, I want to, I want to do a practice with you, just very briefly, where we can begin to open our hearts and allow God to show why that is and to begin the healing process in some of those places by creating space for us to encounter him today. I want to do that through a a simple, prayerful reading of of Jesus' own words. I'm actually going to ask the band to come up and and to to get ready as we sing later today, but we're not going to sing right away. We're just going to be in a a quiet place. And I'm going to read a couple, just two lines from Jesus. And instead of studying it, instead of analyzing it, I just just want us to receive it. This is is an old practice that actually goes back hundreds of years in church history where readers of the Bible would would take their time in their devotional life to read it, not just for intellectual fodder, not for analysis, not even to understand what it means for them, but just in hopes of encountering God's real divine presence in order for them to hear his personal word to them in the moment. Often goes by this, the Latin name Lectio Divina, which means divine reading or spiritual reading. Some people call it a prayerful reading. I want to do this with you today. You don't have to do it, but if you want to do it, let's just close our eyes. Be silent together. Just be still before God and There's probably a lot of things going on in your mind right now. That's okay. 
If it helps, you know, something I like to do is imagine Jesus sitting right in front of me. I'm going to quote his words, so just imagine that he's speaking these words to you. Sure, there's thoughts, there's sounds and noises, but Jesus is before you. Who cares about anything else? I'm going to read this passage three times. and pause between each time. I just want you to listen. listen. Don't analyze it. Don't think about it too much. Don't think about putting off your old sin yet. Just be with him. Don't ask, what does this mean? Just be with him. And as I continue to read it, maybe a word will stand out. I think that might be the Holy Spirit highlighting something for you. And if that happens, grab onto that word. Let it nourish your soul as I continue to read it. Here we go. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light is light. 